a musician who's being honest with them about who they are is infinitely more compelling and interesting to listen to than somebody who has gone through academia and become like an absolute clinical master. Welcome to the Gig Boss Podcast, where musicians go to learn how to navigate the new music economy. My name's Adam Meckler. And it's my mission to get you the tools to have a thriving career in music. And to that end, we've got Paul Taylor on the show today. Paul is a multi-instrumentalist and recording and touring artist out of Memphis, recently somewhere else. We'll talk about it a little bit. He's worked with artists like Eric Gales and Peebles, Kirk Whalem, and Chuck Prophet. He's made his own albums that range from indie rock on his 2020 release, The Music Stands, to explorative funk and fusion on his 2020 release, 2021 release, it is what it isn't, which was like your pandemic record, right? Oh uh, yeah, sort of. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, this music is brilliant. I really enjoy listening to it. Man. Uh, I think you're gonna love this conversation, guys. Paul, thanks for uh, thanks for hanging out with me, man. Adam, it's my honor, man. I was so stoked to meet you and Jana over this last summer, and uh, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, totally. So speaking of of meeting you, we met up in Door County. You know, now that I've like. I, I'm fully researched on what an incredible badass you are. Oh, I mean, it's man. like it was pretty obvious playing with you, but um, I feel extra silly about our first experience playing together being me like struggling to hang on the bass, you know? Oh, it, the bass is always a struggle, you know? <laughs> uh, well, man, it was just funny. I, I just remember you being like, you know, I play, I do play the <laughs> bass too. I, it's like, if you think I'm good at guitar, like, wait till you hear me play the bass. And then the <laughs> same thing is like, if you think I'm good at the bass, man, wait till you hear me play the drums, man. That's really my main oh, thing. I hope I didn't uh, say that. No, no. Oh. <laughs> uh, but dude, I'm, I'm curious, like, you're so fluent on all these instruments. What was your upbringing like that? I mean, your dad was a musician, right? Yes. Well, I kind of had two sets of musician dads because uh, my biological dad was a great vocalist and guitarist and recording engineer. And my stepfather, uh, who basically was another dad to me, was a great singer-songwriter and really into like songcraft. Not that my dad wasn't too, but it was kind of like guitar recording engineering and like all this stuff for my dad. And then it was like, here are some really great songwriters to dig, especially, you know, coming from my stepdad and all their friends and great musicians who, uh, some of who went on to be, you know, really important, like Nashville Session Cats are, are dudes that I'm really lucky to say that, uh, you know, I've known since I was an infant mm. and uh, they would, you know, they'd be like, hey, man, have you listened to like uh, Chester Thompson play drums or, you know, whatever, like little tidbit, maybe when I was like six, you know, Jeez, you should check man. out whatever. And, uh, oh, here's a paradiddle or whatever. So for me, learning music was something that kind of started happening before I even really consciously decided that I wanted to or even really learned how to read or write. You know, I was doing it from a very young age. And yeah. it's basically 100% environmental conditioning for me. Yeah. I, you know, I was going to, I had a question like, do you think it's nature or nurture? I mean, I think about this a lot yeah. as an educator of music is like, you know, a lot of my students come into Michigan Tech and they, they come from real small towns, small programs, not a lot of musical experience. And I'm seeing them grow exponentially while they're here. And so I, I tend to think like, hey, it's really like the environment you're put in is probably way more important than your genetics. But I, I'm sure both play a role. I'm curious where you're at in that line. I think it's all about how much you love music and are willing to put in the time to figure out what your blind spots are. And, you know, that's the other 
there was a very positive aspect of sort of learning on the street, if you will, like from people all of my life very organically. But there was another aspect of that, which was that, you know, people kind of overinflated my ego when I was a little kid because I had a very obvious aptitude towards music. Instead of furthering my education, probably I just thought that I was great. And and it's not to say I actually I was like I was in high school jazz band. I learned so much from Dr. Bill McKee. Um, but then, you know, I was gigging from the age of 14, like uh, all over and doing all kinds of stuff. And I basically thought like, well, I'm going to have a music career. So I, I, I w- was gigging so much that I've failed 11th grade for lack of attendance. This is a shameful truth, but it, wow. I'm 48 now. So so I <laughs> dropped out of high school, man. And, and I thought I was just going to be, uh, you know, some sort of like music star. And around sure. that same time, coinciding with that. A lot of my friends started going to college and like learning really how to play jazz and and learning music. And very quickly, I realized I had no idea, really. I had so many blind spots about music and it sort of forced me into a position of learning, like having to catch up, like what should have been a lifetime of childhood, like basic fundamental building blocks of music education, you know, that I had sort of learned in some sort of organic way. Um, So there was a real positive attribute of growing up in it and being deep in it but the the negative side was like I really didn't know what the heck I was doing until my friends started kicking my butt and I was like oh I've got to make a study so very fortunately for me although I never formally attended music you know any sort of like college or anything but Dr. Tim Goodwin at uh University of Memphis took me under his wing and gave me private bass instruction like like once a week like for a couple of months you know yeah uh, wow. and then I wound up playing a uh, I simultaneously got more interested in jazz drumming and studying really hard you know i wound up playing a bunch of my friends like senior recitals and i was always down in the jazz office i was kind of like an informal fly on the wall getting a sort of free education and getting to gig with a lot of these guys and that's kind of really how i learned i guess that's a long way around for your question i'm sorry no that's great i I love hearing that did you ever finish High school? Did you ever like go back and finish that, or take a GED no, or anything like you that? You know, I never did, man. And and I hate uh, I, it's it's uh, a lot of what what you'll probably hear from me is really uh, I'm deeply conflicted and and have some shame about these things, but also at the same time, you know, I'm 48 now and and things have worked out decently. And you know, I've been very curious about multiple fields and subjects throughout my life, and I think we live in a time where you can absolutely educate yourself just sitting there watching youtube or listening to podcasts or reading books ideally you know or finding um, somebody to give you lessons i mean it's like yeah you essentially got a university education taking lessons with somebody who teaches at a university and i you know like my my uh, mentor fred sturm told me when i graduated from lawrence he was like hey man instead of going to get your master's degree why don't you just take $5,000 and give it to your favorite jazz musician in New York City and be like, hey, can I follow you around for three months? That's exactly what he said. And he goes, that'll be a better education. You're going to meet more people. You're going to get in the scene. And of course, I I didn't do that. But in hindsight, it's like, man, he really, I think he could see the writing on the wall that like student debt was really getting to be a huge thing. And it's like, that's something that you obviously didn't have to deal with. It's like you had to deal with filling holes and you had to deal with maybe some insecurities surrounding that stuff, but you didn't have to deal with $130,000 yeah. in student loans. It's like you were able to make a music career and not have that like really crippling huge amount of debt that a lot of students come out of music school with. It's so true. And so many of my friends, I mean, my wife, so many people that I know are just uh, forever plagued and burdened by this 
this like looming debt. It's like an invisible monster that's always kind of back there for them, you know, and, and I don't have yep. that. And I'm so grateful. And and yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wound up having some really, really fantastic teachers, both on drums and just I mean, and getting to play on Beale Street at a really young age with organ trios when there was still actually jazz on Beale Street as well. Um, yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit. And, tell me about Beale Street. Like, I, I don't know mm-hmm. much about the Memphis scene and like coming up in Memphis. That's got to be a really vibrant thing happening there. Well, you know, it comes and goes. Right now, there's a burgeoning jazz scene under the uh, the incredible jazz professor. Is actually the 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 head of jazz faculty. Well, I forget his official title. He just the last few years, one of my mentors early on, who gave me a fretless bass when I was 14, 1968 Fender Jazz Bass, is now the Ooh. one of the heads of jazz studies at the U of M. His name's Sam Shoup, and he's turning these kids out. That and there's a there's a like after school jazz program called. Memphis Jazz Workshop that's been going on a few years uh, under the guidance of this guy named Dr. Steve Lee. And I've never seen anything like it, what's happening in Memphis right now. Uh, it's mm. kind of sad that I moved away because what's happening <laughs> there is it, it's exploding. Yeah. Um, you know, Memphis has a really, really important role in the history of all American music and it's black American music at its core roots, like starting in Memphis. You have uh, all the way back to Jimmy Lunsford and mm-hmm. then, you know, you have Phineas Newborn Jr. And you have yeah. all the piano greats who, in a way, invented modern uh, some of the modern sounds of jazz. I think you could argue that Donald Brown, Mulgrew Miller, James Mulgrew Williams. Miller. And yeah. these guys were all contemporaries of a lot of people that I grew up kind of getting mentored and gigging with. And they always talked about things that James Williams said or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. and, and that was a very important class coming out of the U of M that made that music um, you have great drummers like Tony Reedus, mm. Joe Dukes. Yeah. And then, I mean, Booker Little, Charles Lloyd, George Coleman. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure on. I'm forgetting people. But like, and the sad thing I think about Memphis is it chose to brand itself as home of the blues, birthplace of rock and roll. And, you know, there's very little said about the importance of our, of what came out of Memphis in terms of jazz. I think Charlie mm. Parker's dad was from Memphis, actually, if you go back and look. It is interesting. Yeah, um, I know Charlie Parker grew up in Kansas City. Kansas, yeah. Yep, right? Kansas. Yeah. Yep. And if you love the music, again, you don't have to go to college for anybody to tell you you should learn these things, but they just wind up being things that you care about, you know. Uh, and obviously, if you're trying to make a lifetime out of playing any sort of serious music, you have to do it because you love it. Uh, there's really no other reason. Absolutely. But, you know, these little tidbits are important, and there should be statues of uh, Booker Little in Memphis, as far as I'm concerned. Hell Charles yeah, man. Lloyd and all those people. I didn't realize uh, Booker Little was from oh, yeah. George George yeah. Coleman either. I didn't know. Yeah, yep. And they all went to Manassas. It's very important, like kind of unbelievable that they wound up being like on the scene, you know, in New York and, and the West Coast as well, like at a critical time for jazz. But yeah. in terms of what I saw, I think to get back to your original question, by dumb luck and I guess by just barely being good enough for whatever positive a- attributes that people saw, I wound up being kind of one of the first call subs for a really brilliant drummer in Memphis who pl- who held the organ trio gig down with a an amazing R&B jazz musician named Charlie Wood in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And he w- it was an organ trio at King's Palace, and I got to play a lot of those gigs. Is that um, like a weekly thing? It was a weekly, and um, there were several times when I held it down for like over a month because yeah. um, my friend Renardo Ward, who's a brilliant jazz drummer, um, and pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, was like off touring or whatever. The guitar player oftentimes was Calvin Newborn, who is Phineas Newborn's brother. 
on a lot of those wow. records. And, and, you know, Charlie Wood would be right on top of the beat and he actually kicked pedals. He's one of those organists who would do that too. And his, yeah. his, his, he would be almost on top of the beat and then Calvin would be all over the, anywhere around the beat. And I just, that was on that gig that I learned, like, if I don't drive this boat with confidence right in the center of these dudes, it's going to, like, I was flailing the first few times I did it. But I really credit that gig with me having to trust putting down the center, um, you know. And having people play off of that. Yeah. And at that time, they were playing standards that I really didn't know. uh, And I Hmm. had to learn on the bandstand, um, you know. um, And now I would tell you that a drummer's most important role is to protect the form set it up for people you know what i'm saying almost nothing else matters as much as being cognizant of where you are within a tune and and illuminating that for for the rest of the band but uh you know imagine being on the bandstand a young nervous kid with these masters and not really having that together yet you know yeah it was trial by fire i got my ass kicked I, mean, I think a lot about uh, Tony Williams playing with Miles when he was 17, Ooh, you know, gosh. when when Tony Williams was 17. It's just like you listen to those recordings of the early 60s Miles Quintet and, it, and it's like Tony Williams is the leader of the band, you know, as a 17-year-old. It's just crazy. Uh, obviously, he had all those forms unlocked. And I'm, I'm like, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, God, I hope my drummer students are listening to this when you're talking about knowing the forms. Last night, we were just working Ooh. on having them sing the melodies while they yes. play through the tunes, yep. while people are improvising so that they know where they are in the form. Yeah. You know, as, like, as a trick for remembering where they are. They should go look at George Flutus's videos. He's posting, like, he knows entire Sonny Rollins, uh, like, saxophone solos he's playing brushes while he's singing scatting these solos along it's kind of a thing he's been doing lately and uh man i mean whoo that's just taking it to such a high degree but yeah Yeah. you have to love the songs and and care about them and sort of you know even if like somebody might call a tune and and i just know it internally i don't immediately think oh that's a 32 bar form or whatever per se like in the english language but you know where it is and and you are hopefully listening to the soloist and accompanying them in a way that you can gracefully, not ham-fistedly help everybody. Because, you know, you're not only having your attention tuned to the band, but also you're you're guiding the audience along, especially with something like jazz, because, you know, no matter how intellectual the crowd may pretend to be, like, you know, they do need our, we need to help them along, you know? Yes. And make yes. it more fun for everybody. Man, I'm preaching that all the time. I'm shaking my head really big for people that are Dude, listening yeah. on yeah. podcast services. I mean, it's like such a huge thing for instrumental musicians, creative musicians, to be, to be able to musically communicate about what, what they're doing and also just verbally like talking to the audience, being able to be like, hey, you know, you should listen for this. This was the inspiration behind this piece, and that's why it sounds like this. And, you know, I talk a lot about, I have this song, The Call, which was like about the phone call I got from my mom when my dad had his heart attack and it's this chaotic free jazz wild thing and it's like that would be totally unpalatable if people didn't understand the rife emotion underneath the inspiration behind writing the tune right so I always tell that story and then people will come up to me and be like wow that was really mean that was my favorite song on the set and it's the weirdest thing that we play you know what I mean so like being able to communicate is such a huge thing with to, to keep audiences engaged in creative music it it really helps and and they know they like it they don't know why you know it's not as easy to articulate like oh well i just like that girl's voice and those lyrics are awesome it's yeah. it's harder to say why you like a uh, really complex yet beautiful like chord progression or, or song structure or something you know yeah. for the layman I mean, we're, yeah we're, we're talking a lot about jazz but you're 
you're also a songwriter. Oh you're yeah. So- like you wrote all those songs. Did you <laughs> did you write all the songs and play all the instruments on on the music stands? Yes, uh, most of my records are. You know, it's oh man, it's rather unfortunate in some ways. I listen to my earlier records, which we won't talk about, but uh, <laughs> because I played all the instruments and and then singing everything, I you know sometimes I think that it's it, it's so much better to make music with other people. But because I grew up doing it. My yep. dad got me help was helping me record songs in first grade about girls I had uh, crushes on in first grade. Like <laughs> he was helping me four track in rooms Amazing. that are just like this. I've always had a like a home music room where recording, and so that became like a my process. And a lot of times, even songwriting sort of happens in that process for me. Sometimes it happens just in an acoustic guitar in a more traditional way. But yeah, that's a huge part of me. And as a matter of fact, I've put some time maybe more time in the last 10 years into really trying to legit be able to play like bebop language and no jazz standards. And it's a whole new bag as a guitarist for me. Like I'm doing solo acoustic jazz gigs and, or like um, at least background dinner music where sometimes I play standards. But I want to say, first off, I'm speaking out of class to say anything about jazz music because I'm a more like just a musician who loves music and I'm not, uh, I think that it's kind of like uh, Hindustani music or any very classical music. You To really be a master, you have to dedicate your life to that tradition. Yep. And my uh, one of my mentors and teachers is a very great jazz drummer, a very important man named Alvin Fielder. He, he straight up said, Paul, you're jack of all trades and a master of none. And it really mm. hurt me at the time. I was in my early 20s, but the more I thought about it, I got more comfortable with that because ultimately what I'm interested in doing and this is where, like, kind of conversely to how much your podcast is about, like, all the things you do to do it right, to make it, maybe my thing is sort of opposite. But yeah. I had to kind of let go and realize that I'm sort of here on this planet with a unique journey in relationship to music mm-hmm. that's a little bit of everything. And maybe it's not going to make me a huge success, per se, by today's standards in one of those fields. But the blessing is that I'm afforded the free time and the and the ability to kind of have my freedom to play whatever kind of music I want and and study on my own and have, you know, for me, time is the most uh, valuable commodity to be on this earth happy and well-fed and know my bills are paid. That's yep. my success. And I'm not as motivated to like, um, for better or for worse, you know, and, and again, this is just me and maybe this it certainly doesn't apply to other people who are hungry for something. They should go get it and don't take what I'm saying. But, you know, for me, I'm just happy to live a laid back life where I have time to like noodle around till 2 a.m. on my guitar trying to like figure out the bebop language or whatever. Yeah. And then write I love a song that, the man. next day or whatever, you know. Yeah. I um, think that's such a great lesson, though. Like success, the definition of success is different for everybody. Right? Absolutely. And your, your definition of success is like, can I pay my bills? Can I live somewhat? Can I eat? Do I have a full stomach? Can I noodle on my guitar until two a.m.? Can yeah. I play gigs all the time? Like that—that's what I want to be doing. And if—and if the answer is yes to those questions, then like, yeah, that's your—that's success, right? You know, like not everybody's seeking fame, and I, I think anybody, any—I mean, like, it's like fame is such a—it's like it's such a such a passing fancy. It's such a—it's—it's—it's yeah. it's, it's, it's this massive idea. And it's like, we shouldn't be seeking fame. We should be seeking consistency. We should be seeking consistent work, showing up every day, like picking away and then falling in love with that process because then that's success ultimately, right? Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, um, there's so many elements that I could speak to about that. 
Like I love and pride myself in being overly prepared, even for a one-off gig, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, and I learned the hard way just from when I was young and dumb and thought that I could, so many people rest. And this was true of some Memphis legends that I played with, like including drummers, they rest on their reputation because people tell them they're great. And then they show up on a gig and just think they can feel their way through it. And it's Mm -hmm. so disrespectful to the other musicians time and to the music itself and to the spirit of the music. And to me, uh, learning the music, being prepared uh, is something that I've worked really hard towards. And just the fact that I could say now that I could do that is a level of success. You know, it's not even about uh, and and if you care enough about those kind of things, then. um, Well, like, okay, I'll back up and say that (laughs) you have to look at where we are in the scale of humanity in the last 150, 200 years with the invention of electricity, the printing press, recording technology, radio. These are all an anomaly. They're a blip in the scale of human evolution. Mm. And they have. What's happened is that it's enabled people, not that there weren't always like theater stars or people who wrote books that were important throughout, uh, you know, all of the history of mankind, but this has been hyperinflated into making human beings want to be stars, like little mini gods, if you will, on the planet that yes. have their followings and their fans. And uh, yes, especially and, now with. TikTok and YouTube and well, yeah, but I mean, even uh, even if you were a radio star in the 30s and 40s, or your records were selling in, in the 60s or whatever, it's the same kind of over. In it's not that it's a bad thing that it's possible, but and it's not even a bad thing because we get to enjoy all the music. But the other side of it is that it kind of went up, and the the music industry rose and rose, and then when social media started, like and streaming. This whole thing that we were taught you're supposed to strive to be, like this very successful star, has now the the playing field is sort of leveling out because there's this great leverage called TikTok or Instagram. And by the same token, it's as oversaturated as anything you could ever see. You're but a drop in the ocean of people who are trying to become the next hot Instagram, neo-soul Instagram guitar guitarist or whatever. Like, And man, I've tried to play that game a little bit. And it wore me out. I, I basically came back to the conclusion that I can only be me. There are so many people out there who are hungry for it and trying to do all these other things. But my definition of success is to put out work that I'm proud of. And if only a few people hear it, that's fine. Uh, I mean, my definition of success is if at 2 a.m. sitting on my couch with my dog, I successfully navigate through a bird blues without playing a bunch of cliches. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yep. uh, I, you know, yep. and... It's not to say that other people, well, again, I'm older. I mean, I'm 48 years old and, and maybe I'm seeing it through a skewed lens because I, you know, I'm old enough to remember when there were still record deals and publishing deals and all this old school thing to be had that sort of don't exist in the same way. And I'm viewing it through a different filter, but I just don't have any desire to play the game, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. maybe, maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. I don't know. I mean, it is what it is. It's, I'll still it's your, do little it's things. It's your choice, you know? I mean, I, uh, the record that I put out last year, it is what it is, and I, I hired a publicist, you know? and I saw you got a bunch of reviews on that, and yeah, man, well, it's such a great dude. record. And oh, listening man. to the 2020 and the 2021 back-to-back, I mean, it's just to hear your songwriting stuff and your singing and your lyricism... And this, like, beautiful, like, Beatles-esque and, oh, and like, Steely Dan a little bit, and, like... You know, then your fusion stuff. I'm, I'm just like rocking out 
Jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> so, yeah, I was going to say earlier, isn't there more to that quote? Isn't the rest of that quote like uh, it's better, but it's better to have more, better to have more things going on than just to be good at one thing or something like that? I think there, I think there's a second half to that quote, that old quote that actually yeah. says that it's good to be a well, a jack of all trades. Maybe, and in these this day and age, I mean, I, you know, and I think Miles Davis saw this. That's why he hired people like Tony Williams because he heard new sounds. He knew the music had to grow. A musician who's being honest with them about who they are is infinitely more compelling and interesting to listen to than somebody who has gone through academia and become like an absolute clinical master. You know, that's why a lot of those people don't. A lot of those people don't end up having careers in music. Well, and it's very unfortunate, but you know they become jaded because it's very, very hard and competitive to to be valid to to get the validation you seek as one of those musicians and to be successful and to be able to make a living at it and so you wind up taking wedding gigs or playing with what diehard jazzers call pop gigs or whatever and like you yep. become jaded and, and bitter and cynical and i just feel grateful that i see music more as one big thing you know that has very specific dialects that i'm interested in in dabbling in you know yeah uh, and for, cool. it is for better or for worse because I couldn't hang on a really serious, like straight ahead, like burning New York gig. Uh, I probably could as a drummer, maybe as a bass player, but certainly not as a guitarist. You know, I mean, I could fake my way through an easy gig, but like, you know, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm one of those people, and that's okay. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the so the quote the full quote is a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Ah, see? Well, that's beautiful, you know. It's the full quote. We're just going to pause there for a sec to say that this podcast is brought to you by the Gig Boss app. Jana and I created Gig Boss because we were leading our own groups, freelancing in others, touring, teaching private lessons, and doing freelance education work, all while raising our two boys. We needed a way to keep track of everything. Create a group, create an event, and start organizing the madness. Gig Boss app is free on iOS and Android. Well, and Alvin, you know, he told me I could swing, and he was very, very helpful to me. I got to play with him as a bass player, but he also schooled. I mean, you would spend hours on the phone with this guy, and he'd be like, what do you know about... He'd call out all these random drummers, then you'd be listening, and here's why Frankie Dunlop, the way he played Monk's tunes, is so important. Or, like, little things that he would disseminate that uh, were life-changing, and, and he knew that... I don't think he would have said those things to me if or, or disseminated that information to some young kid if he didn't think that I cared, you know? Totally. He, he wouldn't totally. suffer fools or, or waste people. And he knew maybe by saying that to me that what it actually made me di- do was practice all the instruments a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll show you, you know? And, and I mean, the thing is, my therapy in life and my relationship with music is like a holy, like whatever reason I'm put on this planet, a, a large part of it is even just to be alone in a room working on music it's it's very much a, about my relationship with it as much as it is about taking that and then putting it outwards into the communal thing with other earthlings you know yeah um but well i want to get back to what i was going to say about the publicist um sure, which yeah, is yeah. that um you know there are certain things you have to do if you want your music to be heard and get out there you do have to play the game a bit you hire a publicist almost all and they're uh, some of them are really good friends of mine and so this is no slight at them but they basically tell you like you get their you get to put their press thing at the top of a bio that you write 
and yep. they have you do a lot of the work. In some instances, you'll even want up mailing a lot of the stuff yourself. But yep. you get their brand, which when a uh, publication receives this package in the mail, they see their name, and so they open it. And if you were to cold send something to these people, they might not ever even open the envelope. So it's it's a very interesting thing, but you got to be willing to do some of this slep work to get your music heard. And, and, you know, as much as I talk about how, like, I'm just very content being where I'm at, it's also true. You do want to connect with the other people who want it, who you think might be your audience. And, and that also is a very important part about marketing these days is you can waste a lot of time spinning out, just trying to reach out to a broad audience. But if you can really tap into the people that you are going to get you, um, man, you can save yourself a lot of headache, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've been talking a lot about finding your audience, niching down, you know, figuring out who, you know, with this podcast too, like who exactly wants to listen to something like this and then how do I get it in front of them? I, I do think a lot about, I have a couple things I want to say, I guess, uh, maybe this is just my ego, but like, I want people to hear my music, man. Like sure. I, I want it to be heard. And I decided some time ago that, my music stands up with anything you know it's like anything that's in the field that i'm at it's like i'm right there man so what's the difference between you know somebody that's like a really famous big band composer and me what's the difference between you know what i mean so i'm like, I'm like how do i reach the people that might like this kind of music because i don't think my music is the problem i think i'm there with honesty and love and intention and i've put boatloads of work and time and so how, like, why I released this album in, in 2019, Magnificent Madness. That's like my magnum opus. It's like this massive project is collaborations with singers and hip hop artists. And it's all through composed music that I wrote and uh, guest, guest soloists and stuff that I hadn't done before. Because before I was like, I'm not going to play the game. I'm just going to have my friends in my band and I'm going to make great music and that's going to be enough. And it just wasn't. It wasn't enough. And so at some point I decided, like, I'm going to. I'm going to get my ass in the game. You know what I mean? Like, it's like I'm going to play this game. I'm going to try to get my music heard by more people. And uh, the, th- the thing I wanted to say about ego was I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, I- I've been thinking about doing an episode on the podcast called, uh, like, Ego in Music. Is it good or is it bad? And I've often felt like it serves a purpose in music in a big way. And it also can be a huge hindrance in music in a big way. And so there's, it's this double-edged sword of like ego being this thing that, that gets you onto the stage, that, that has you playing confidently, which helps you play better. I mean, there's like all these things that ego is important for you. If to believe it, trumpet playing is like so fucking hard, man. And, and if, you, if you're not, if you don't believe that you're the best, and it's like you know you're not. I know that Alan Vizzuti is out there and Wynton Marsalis is out there and Wayne Bergeron is out there. You know, I like, but if you don't believe it when you're playing, you're going to play like shit. And that's just, that's just how it goes. But if you walk into the practice room believing you're the shit, then you're not going to learn anything, right? Yeah. So it's like you have to have clear eyes when you're, when you're making your way into the practice room going like, actually, like you're saying, these are the holes that I need to fill. So what do I need to work on to get to where that's I need right. to be? Right. That's right. Self-awareness. Yeah. Well, I would say confidence and self-assurance are very different than I think I'm the baddest motherfucker ever, you know, like uh, I'm going to cut you. First of all, (laughs) and maybe some people are really interested in that, like New York cats or whatever, 
who are clamoring to the top, ever rat race to be the baddest, whatever, most technically can play. I don't even know what they're fighting about anymore, but like, <laughs> I have no interest in any of that. And, you know, yeah. again, it gets back to, you know, you got to deal with the music. And especially if you're trying to be a jazz musician, it's a very specific tradition mm-hmm. and you got to deal with it. And it's broad. You could not in one lifetime learn it all, but you better try to go as hard as you can. And yeah. uh, and you got to do it from a place of love because, man, again, if not, like, it's real hard to be successful and especially in an oversaturated market. And it seems to me like there's a resurgence, dare I say, of almost like fusiony music with Snarky Puppy and Wolfpack and, and all this totally. stuff. Like, uh, and, and, and there are a lot of younger human beings playing real instruments at a level that I can't even fathom. It is unbelievable, you know? Mm. And if you want to dive into that stream, then more power to you. If that's your life's calling, like, I think uh, that's great because it actually, (laughs) in one especially important aspect, it just furthers the generations that are going to keep playing live music instruments and it keeps that as a valid thread in humanity. Whereas a lot of people thought by now, like, all music would be like, based whatever you know so i i want to talk to you a bit about your move uh you moved to door county wisconsin where you've been you've been playing i started getting text messages from my in-laws like you're not gonna believe this guy jake then you know oh, you're man. not gonna believe this guy that moved to door county you know sending me videos and stuff Gosh. uh so when somebody like you shows up in a small like <laughs> area like that i know door right. county is different because in the summers it's like this really it's a hotbed of tourism and so you can be playing to different people every single day Jana's band used to play you know we used to play five nights a week out there we we sold 2,000 cds the first year we released one of our cds because there were new people there buying cds every single show and i was like man we have found the key to you know we could sell two two thousand cds we can make twenty thousand dollars and of course it's streaming hit but why make the move from memphis especially as you said like memphis is now there's this really cool thing happening there why make the move from memphis to door county well it's a convoluted tale and i'll try to regale you with it as succinctly as possible (laughs) (laughs) it starts with the fact that i've uh, been coming up here around labor day weekend every year more years than not since 2007 playing with a, a dear friend of mine named Eric Lewis. And he plays at Fishstock Camp David. It's a, locals here will know these places, but it's a unbelievably uh, amazing barn-like concert series. I mean, the first time you ever come to Door County, uh, especially if you're from a place where it's like 100 degrees all summer long, like Memphis, Tennessee is, mm-hmm. and you get here and it's like the beginning of September and it's 60 degrees, you know, uh, I mean, I immediately fell in love with this place. And in 2010, yeah. uh, when my wife first became my girlfriend, I brought her up uh, for one of those weekends, and she fell in love with it. We wound up eloping sort of one of those. Uh, like in 2013, we uh, I came up to play, but we also got a little cabin on a small little island uh, in off the lake, and I had uh, we we got married. I had to go pick our officiant up in a pontoon boat. And bring wow. her there and then take her back, you know, and oh, very low awesome. key. And um, we always thought like, wow, this is really where the dream is in terms of if you love nature and uh, being on the water and, and it feels like 
Um, well, actually, the truth of the matter is there's a really bad syphilis outbreak up here. And like people play free jazz all the time. You don't want to come here. <laughs> Not at all. It's a horrible place to live. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, like, well, it certainly I'm, doesn't need more people <laughs> in the summer. That's for sure. Well, yeah, it's getting out of control. It's in some of the little townships. Uh, and p- you have to, for people who don't know, just look at a map. Wisconsin, you know, if it's a mitten, there's the top of the, there's the thumb. And that's the peninsula that's Door County uh, above Sturgeon Bay. It, it, Northern Door County is like living on a magical island that basically I would say is kind of like hill country, Mississippi farmland. Lots yeah. of cows, lots of corn, and then surrounded by what feels like an ocean on either side, but there yep. are no sharks and jellyfish in that ocean, yeah. <laughs> and it's fresh water. And it's a magical place that you'd be a fool not to want to uh, figure out how to be here. So cut yeah. to back to my Memphis life, which was, oh man, I just had such an amazing, non-denominationally speaking, blessed life of, <laughs> of playing drums in the funk and soul uh like afrobeat uh high life band i was a drummer in the second line funk soul band i played guitar with my friends in a band called the privilege uh part of a very important memphis collective called sons of mud boy their their fathers were all our mentors and producers and great songwriters I got to play guitar for the last five years in the Reba Russell Blues Band, um, and I had had a whole career as a bass player and still did that. I mean, basically, I was gigging my tail off, oftentimes as many gigs as I could possibly want, plus like really great paying church gigs. Mm -hmm. And then a very, I want to talk about this anyway, so this is a sidetrack, but it's going to get back to Door County, so just bear with me as I go over here for a second. Um, (laughs) I'm with you. There was a, all my life in Memphis, there's a giant Sears warehouse building that sat empty from like the early, late 80s, early 90s into the around, well, 2018 when they opened this building, but, or, or this thing, but there's a art organization in Memphis called Crosstown Arts, and they somehow through grants and, and all this stuff made it, they revamped this building which is the size of like the Empire State Building if it was lying outside. It's a massive, it's kind of like the Mohawk in Buffalo. It's a, it's a, just a massive building that my yep. whole, like in, as a kid, we would break in there with our BX, BMX bikes and like it's right there in Midtown Memphis, right by where I grew up. Uh, but it was revamped into an amazing living quarters and also like an art gallery, a venue. Um, and they had artist re- residencies from all over the world. Like at least this was their ambition, sort of to be like another mass mocha. Um, yeah. And uh, somehow I emailed when I saw that they were doing all this and I I emailed Crosstown Arts about like, are you going to do music residencies? And they were like, well, we've thought about doing that in addition to like visual art medium residencies. We're not sure what it would look like. We'd like to meet with you. We know who you are, blah, blah, blah. And Mm -hmm. I wound up being a consultant on what this uh, residency space would look like, which I was basically like, it would be like a room like I'm in right now. You'd have Pro Tools some microphones it would be backlined with gear and maybe yep. some soundproofing and some nice couches and a lamp and that would be a place that an artist could come and do some work you know yeah and so awesome. so they paid me to be a consultant and then they awarded me the first residency and it oh, was a, yes it was a six-month residency Whoa. where i got to because uh, most of them are like now i think like at most a month and a half or two or something but it was mm. a six-month residency and you know, I already had a room like this in my house in Midtown Memphis, but 
I, I, it's something about being in a new space and having to go to like leave home and almost treat it like a job and yep. go to another place. It made me finish all these projects that I'd had floating around. And, and one day a friend of mine asked if his band could practice in the space. And I was like, I don't know if Crosstown Arts would let me do it. But then I was like, wait, I could record them. Um, and so I mic'd them up. And this is like one of those situations where it's like the control room is sort of just a little doll station in the actual live room. I was yep. kind of limited and my microphones were limited, but I don't know what happened, but that recording sounded so damn good. <laughs> and, you know, it became this thing where I realized I wanted to start recording a bunch of my friends. And uh, there was this other thing that I did where I, I was interviewing a bunch of like a really like I interviewed Eric Gales in there and Luther yep. Dickinson and some cool. other jazz masters uh, in Memphis. And it just became this magical vibe that seemed really important. And so, man, the the founder of Crosstown Arts got so mad whenever I would say this, but I don't work there anymore. So I could say it. I kind of invented a job for myself and I wrote a proposal. And on the last day of my residency, they gave me an offer letter and hired me to stay there working at for as an employee of Crosstown Arts running the studio for future residents. Wow. And so that Amazing. was that was that was early 2018 all through then uh, I think well I came that early September up to Door County to play the show and when I came back my first day as an official employee at Crosstown Arts running the studio. And I was there all the way through until the pandemic uh recording people and uh, helping. They also have an amazing venue that was just getting better and better. Like I would help MC the shows and uh, help artists come in. And we're talking like they were bringing people in like Julian Lodge, uh, Mark cool. Rabot, like very yeah. serious people were coming. And the pandemic, of course, did what the pandemic did. And yep. nobody could foresee how serious it was going to be. And I guess it was in March of 2020 that we all went home and Crosstown Arts is amazing. And they, they kept us on, they kept paying us for like a month and a half or two. And then they signed up like a mass unemployment, like furlough situation. And then finally, when it just looked like there was no end in sight, they were like, man, we're really sorry, but like, we just have to let go like a 50% of our staff right now. You know, there's nothing yep. we could do. So that day when I got that call, I went on a walk with my dog uh, through this beautiful park that was right by my house called Overton Park. It's a place where I've spent a lot of time and actually a few of my records are dedicated to the Old Forest Trail. Um, but I took one of those peace meditation walks and when I came back, I says to my wife, I says to her, you know what? Why don't we just go try and hide out in Door County? <laughs> and so, you know, after my life, like that was kind of, if you could even call the job at Crosstown Arts like a square day gig, but it was my first like salaried, like insurance, like real, like, and, and Crosstown Arts, Oh, gosh, you just got to look it up online. And I mean, what's happening there is unbelievable. And yeah, to be we'll part link of it in to, the show notes for people listening. We'll to be on the ground arts. floor of it, it, it was such a, again, man, just such a like blessing. You know, it was a hard pill to swallow that it was maybe over, but it, I took mm -hmm. it. And, you know, 2020, if you're smart, I mean, I'd written for some grants and had some loans uh, and things to ease the burden of basically my life being put on hold. Because, of course, every band, like, six, seven yeah. bands that I played with every fucking gig was gone. And, and yep. so we just took the opportunity and in a way it facilitated us getting up here. 
immediately my wife looked in Memphis at the online at the Door County Peninsula Pulse, and there was a winter cabin for rent right on the water uh, for 800 bucks a month starting November 1st through like the end of May. Yeah, and so yeah. we contacted that lady who incidentally is now a dear friend of mine and, and just a wonderful person. And we wound up, you know, through a series of rentals up here. And as as things eased up at the beginning of last year, um, we just decided, like, this is home for us. We've been embraced by the community. Yeah. Slowly but time. surely, as the pandemic has eased up, my life has become just the same, if not somewhat more incredibly gigtastic up here. I've, I've mm-hmm. had more work than I need. It's been hard to learn to say no because everybody up here is so fun to play with. And, uh, but man, I've, I've just, it's, it's, I've been working my tail off, you know? And, and, but the difference is you live basically on this beautiful water and this beautiful natureful land away from the troubles of, you know, big city life, like a grid, seeing things like a stoplight. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to describe. Like, people don't even lock their doors up here. It just feels so, like, in a way I feel guilty about it, you know, because there are some real things I want to be an advocate for making this world a better place. And in a way, it's like I escaped away. Yep. Um, but the yep. beauty is I can still put out records. I mean, from now, you could live anywhere. You could do a podcast with somebody from anywhere. You could put a record out from anywhere. And, yep, uh, you know, it just feels like this is an important thing to have happened for me uh to get some time i'm never as much as i toured all over the world i never lived anywhere in my whole entire life well that's not true when i was 10 years old when i was six years old we lived in la and i went to first grade there and when i was in 1984 when i was 10 years old my stepfather was signed to dick james publishing and we lived in england so i went to what would have been fourth grade here it was third term there it really messed up my schooling it was crazy but i did live a few places at child as an adult i had never lived anywhere else besides memphis Mm. and this place because it already kind of felt like a home away from home seemed like a logical place to uh you know check out and now i don't ever really want to go south of egg harbor again you know yeah man i hate to say it it's kind of nice up here it's still a struggle and there's nowhere to live like the house where I am broadcasting to you from, we've gone through a series of long-term rentals. We're not really in a position to buy a house. And I mean, this is the land of opulence up here. It's disgusting, the obscene yeah. amounts of wealth. But yeah, we would walk amount. along this road and we noticed a, a vacant house. And my wife actually kind of did some sleuth internet stalking and contact the owner of this house. And we convinced her to let us sign a two-year long-term rental lease where I'm living now. Which is amazing because if you were Two to look, years. if you were to look anywhere wow. to figure out a place to live in Door County, there is there's zero. Even the condominiums, like they're they're backlogged. There's just yeah. nowhere to live. It's yep. actually like quite a problem for it's a problem um, for people that are working up there workers, in the summers. And yeah. pl- people who are trying to find places to li- uh or, or or restaurants who are looking to hire people besides J one students. Like, yep. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. Um, that's kind of neither here nor there, I guess, for the purposes of this podcast, but that is why I made my way up here and it, it happened organically. This is something I, it just kind of came in my mind while I was telling that story that I wanted to speak about if there's one kind of difference that I think has made a difference in my life and having lasting relationships and why, even though it doesn't seem like I play the game necessarily, I've had enduring work. It's because... 
I've formed real relationships with other human beings organically. And mm. yes, I showed them that I was willing to do the work and I showed up prepared and I learned the music and all that. But also, I didn't look at it as networking to further myself as a career. I made friends with people and we had things in common. And so we worked together, you know? I mean, yeah. and that, whenever that can happen for anybody in their life, like those are going to be the things that last for you the longest, you know? Mm. I mean, it's not to say that you can't have some random connections that you make just by kind of doing the networking thing that don't wind up being beautiful friendships because that definitely can happen. But for me, yeah. all of my successes have basically happened, you know, organically by being present and, and, and having genuine relationships that dare I say, even, you know, this is something that gets bandied about with my friends a lot about being in a band, but, uh, you know, the music is an artifact of the hang. Like if you're, if you're mm -hmm. having a good time hanging out and talking with people and a friendship and a brother slash sisterhood with people, then the music is going to reflect that. And that's true of the work as well. And I'm talking about like some commercials that I've wound up scoring or films I've wound up scoring and other big jobs I've had came from friendships, you know? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I think that's I important. I love that. You know? I love that. Yeah. Awesome, man. I think that's a great. Uh, you just put a real nice bow on it. Um, I'm curious what you got coming up, man. But are you are you working on anything well, yeah. recording wise? So the record I put out last year, it is what it isn't. Um, actually, I started recording that record after. So this is another beautiful thing. Um, actually, I really want to talk about this. Uh, that happened. <laughs> uh, in the pandemic is that uh so i grew up making music with a guy named luther dickinson his father's a great record producer named jim dickinson out of memphis and there's not a single musical decision i make that isn't somehow informed by something i didn't that that i learned uh from this man jim dickinson he he worked wow. with Ry Cooter for very many years and uh he is uh, one of the musicians on time out of mind that bob dylan record he yeah. played piano on wild horses he's was part of the um, wow. uh, criteria rhythm section that worked with like Aretha Franklin. All these. He's a very important Memphis uh, producer. He did Big Stars Third. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about him. Uh, and he had a band in Memphis for many years with a guy named Sid Selvage. And so Jim and Sid had respective sons, Luther and Cody Dickinson, and Sid had a son named Steve Selvage. Now, all of our dads knew each other because my dad was a recording engineer and musician, and they would talk about, we should get our boys together. You know, this is when we were all little kids. And and um, yep. and I met Steve Selvage in the atrium of Ardent Recording Studios when we were like but the summer between sixth and seventh grade. And we wound up all uh, spending our teenage years and 20s making music together, playing their dad's music, which is a r really important catalog of Memphis music. And uh, just also playing in a bunch of bands. I mean, Luther and Cody and I had a band called DDT, which was Dickinson, Dickinson, and Taylor. And we became a band called the North Mississippi All-Stars. So I was the okay. first bass player in that band. You know, they went up doing their thing. We all kind of went up drifting apart, having our respective lives, but just being brothers for life and, and making music. And I've played on a bunch of Luther's records. I've played on a bunch of Jim's records. I played drums on both of Sid Selvage's really important records. And Steve and I, you know, Steve and Luther and I, we've always played... A lot of their dads and my dad all passed away, and we kept up the tradition of Sons uh, of Mudboy and the Neutrons by forming a project called Sons of Mudboy, which is yeah. keeping that music alive. Cool. And as a matter of fact, I may be the world's only 
Grammy-nominated washed-up bassist because of a record that Luther <laughs> put out by Sons of Mud Boy when, uh, the year that his father passed away. Anyway, all that to say, pandemic comes, and I get an email from Luther saying, hey, you should join this video messaging app called Marco Polo. Me and Steve yep. are on it. And by the way, here's some tracks I just, bass tracks I put to a BPM. Uh, you want to record some drums on it. And so what actually happened for me before we moved to Door County in the summer of 2020 was that me and Luther and Steve made an instrumental funk record. Uh, it's hard to just say it's funk. It's Memphis driven. It's kind of all over the place, but we were messaging and keep in mind you, we've all been brothers for life, but sort of slipped apart. All of a sudden we were talking all day long to each other, working yep. on music. And we made this record, um, called mem mods, which is M E M underscore. And then M O D S. There is an Instagram page that's, uh, coming out. And so my friend, my friend, Steve's dad had a record label back in the day called Peabody records and a bunch of important records, uh, Alex Chilton, like Flies on Sherbert, a um, bunch of others. Uh, and so Steve decided he would resurrect Peabody Records. I'm actually wearing the shirt, I realize. Yeah, there you go. On the screen. Um, and this record that I made, we made together before I made it, it is what it isn't, is coming out in February of next year. Uh, the okay, first cool. single is about to be released in October. Uh, and I think the second one is released like in December. So I forget, there's three singles that are coming out in the interim between October and when the street date of the record drops. Awesome. Um, it's crazy because these guys who are like my lifelong brothers, it, this record sort of brought us closer together and it's in a way a record we could have never made had we all been in the same room together, but we were all at our respective home studios making this incredibly unique thing unlike anything we've ever done, but that somehow bears influences of all the music we love. And I'm just... It's the best work we've ever made together for all the music we've made over our 30-year friendship. It's like a crowning achievement, and I'm so, so super stoked on it. Um, and when cool. we were done, the funny thing is that like I, I wound up, with all the energy I had left over, is actually how I wound up making it is what it is, and I just kept recording when we were done. Because <laughs> you were just fucking pumped. You were I just was pumped. on you fire like, with it, going. man. And so like the, the enthusiasm awesome. you probably hear on that record is from yeah. the high I was from making this other record. Um, and it's cool. just been a long time coming because Steve had to work out some things with the distributors and, and they, Steve plays in a band called the hold steady and, uh, Luther, you know, he plays the all-stars and, and does so many other things as well, plays with Phil Lesh and all these people. And so like yeah. finding the right time that we could finally release this record has been a couple of years in the making. And it's been like, I've been waiting with bated breath, but I'm so stoked on it. And, um, my my friends uh, Art Edmiston and Mark Franklin did the horn arrangements. They're guys who like were in Greg Holman's band and played in JJ Gray and Mofro and really really yeah. incredible horn section. And I, I I just can't wait for folks to hear it. So be on the lookout for that. Go follow that page. Um, obviously you could find me New Memphis Colorways on my socials and uh, keep posted. Yep. Th this this winter when the, all the the city slows down, I have an incredible backlog of music I've been working on over the last few years of, uh, up here. And I'm going to, like, finish all of it and maybe, you know, let next year be Memmod's year and possibly gear up to release some stuff of my own next fall. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. Hey, all Adam, right. thank you so much for having me, man. Yes. Thank you for doing this. We're going to link all of Paul's stuff in the show notes. So check out the show notes for New Memphis Colorways, for Memmod's and all Crosstown Arts, all that stuff yeah. is going to be in the show notes. Uh, dude, this was awesome. Thank you. Man, thank you so much, Adam. 
Yeah. All I right. hope we play we soon, it. man. Yes. Let's do it. All right. Peace. Yeah. Peace. Peace.